This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. Hey, I've got a good show lined up for you today. There's a lot going on around the world that we need to talk about. In particular, what's going on in the financial markets. And on that topic, I will be joined in segments two and three of today's program with a brilliant market analyst, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Michael Oliver. Uh, So you'll want to stay tuned for that. I have been offering this month on the program our March special report. The report is titled, The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. If you'd like to get your copy of the report, as well as some bonus information that I'll be happy to include when you do request the report, all you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report and the bonus information, and I will be very glad to do that. You know, the dollar is widely used in international trade. That, however, may be about to change dramatically with a development this past week. I bring this up because if foreign demand for dollars drops significantly and quickly, That will, in my view, lead to even greater inflation, a topic that is obviously at the top of everybody's minds today and something we've been talking about here on the program. The Wall Street Journal ran an article this past week. It was published March 15. The headline on the article says, Saudi Arabia considers accepting yuan or yuan instead of dollars for Chinese oil sales. Now, the yuan is a, uh, the Chinese currency, and I'll talk more about that in just a second. Let me give you just a bit from this article, again published on March the 15th. Saudi Arabia is in active talks with Beijing to price some of its oil sales to China in yuan. People familiar with the matter said, a move that would dent the U.S. dollar's dominance of the global petroleum market and mark another shift by the world's top crude exporter toward Asia. Now, when you talk about the Chinese currency, the official currency of China is the renminbi. The yuan is a unit of currency. Now, again, a bit from the Wall Street Journal article, the talks with China over yuan-priced oil contracts have been off and on for six years, but they've accelerated this year as the Saudis have grown increasingly unhappy with decades-old U.S. security commitments to defend the kingdom, the people said. And I'll give you some background on this uh, in just a moment. And most importantly, we'll talk about what it might mean for you. Now, the Saudis are angry over the United States' lack of support for their intervention in the Yemen civil war and over the Biden administration's attempt to strike a deal with Iran over its nuclear programs. The article says that Saudi officials were shocked by the precipitous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. Now, China buys about 25% of all the oil that Saudi Arabia exports. Right now, China pays for that oil using U.S. dollars. If those sales now move and the currency used in those transactions is yuan and not dollars, China doesn't have nearly the need to inventory U.S. dollars, at least to the extent that they do now. The Wall Street Journal 
Journal article said it would be a profound shift for Saudi Arabia to price even some of its roughly 6.2 million barrels a day of crude exports in anything other than dollars. Presently, the majority of global oil sales, about 80% of all oil sales around the world, are done in dollars, and the Saudis have traded oil exclusively in dollars since 1974. Now, some of you may not know the backstory on this, but going all the way back to 1944, there was an agreement called the Bretton Woods Agreement that made the U.S. dollar exchangeable for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. Now, U.S. citizens could not own gold legally in 1944. However, any foreign entity that had U.S. dollars was able to exchange those U.S. dollars for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. Now, that all changed in 1971. In 1971, President Nixon went on television and said that he needed to temporarily suspend the redemptions of U.S. dollars for gold to protect the dollar from international currency speculators. Now, that's really not what happened. At the time of the Bretton Woods Agreement, my best research shows that the U.S. had more than 20,000 tons of gold, and by 1971, that 20,000-ton reserve had been reduced to about 8,000 tons. So essentially, there was a run on the bank. Countries like Britain, France, and Germany said, hey, I don't necessarily want these dollars. I think I'd feel a lot better having the gold. Pretty much the United States in the 1960s, by implementing the Medicare and Medicaid programs and by engaging in a war in Vietnam, had become cash-strapped and had accumulated a lot of debt. And to solve that problem, they started to create currency. Well, these foreign countries saw the writing on the wall and said, hey, wait a minute, I think I'd rather have the gold because you can't print gold. Well, essentially, when that particular agreement was rescinded upon, to use that term, when U.S. dollars were no longer exchangeable for gold, the U.S. government had to figure out a way to create demand for U.S. dollars. After all, if you're holding U.S. dollars and they're no longer, re they're no longer redeemable for gold, why would you want to hold dollars as opposed to any other currency? So what happened at that time, um, Henry Kissinger and other U.S. representatives went to Saudi Arabia and put together an agreement. This agreement simply said that the United States would offer military protection for Saudi Arabia, would also provide the Saudis with weapons and guaranteed protection from enemies, and the Saudi royal family said, hey, that's a great idea, but what do you want in return? Well, the United States said, I want two things. One, I want you to price all of your oil in U.S. dollars. In other words, if somebody comes to you and wants to buy oil, if they don't have U.S. dollars, you need to turn them away. And all your surplus oil proceeds, we want you to buy U.S. treasuries. We want you to help subsidize U.S. government deficit spending. Well, the Saudi family quickly agreed to those terms, and the petrodollar was born in 1974. That agreement was fully in place by 1974, 
And by 1975, all other oil-producing nations of OPEC said, hey, we want in on this deal. We'll, we'll buy all, your, all, our, all the U.S. government debt we can with our oil proceeds, and we'll price our oil only in U.S. dollars. And sure enough, the petrodollar was created. That has allowed the United States to engage in significant deficit spending, and it's allowed the Federal Reserve to get away with all this currency creation. However, that now may be changing. So what does this mean for you? Well, it simply means that as the world moves away from U.S. dollars, you may want to look at diversifying your portfolio as well. If you have dreams of a comfortable, stress-free retirement, certainly currency diversification is something you really didn't need to think about even 20 years ago, but it's something you need to think about now, and it's something that's not often talked about by most financial professionals. That's why I'm offering this month a resource, The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. It is a special report. I'd be very glad to send you that special report absolutely free. And when you request the report, I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling book titled Revenue Sourcing, which contains some strategies that you may want to consider when it comes to managing your nest egg moving ahead uh, as currencies are devalued, as stock markets are overvalued, bond markets are overvalued. Uh, we are entering a period of time that is going to prove to be very, very interesting and also probably very stressful. So get some additional resources. Get a second opinion. Uh, we do have, as I said, the special report for March available. Just go to requestyourreport.com to let me know where to mail the report and the additional resources. Again, the report, The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. Again, the website is requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Michael Oliver. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is a guest that I very much enjoyed having on uh, about six months ago. Very excited to have him back on the program. I'm joined today by Mr. Michael Oliver. He is the founder of MSA, or Momentum Structural Analysis. The website to check out his work is olivermsa.com. And Michael, welcome back to the program. Oh, good to be back, Dennis. So, Michael, just for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with you or maybe haven't been long-time listeners, could you just briefly explain a little bit about uh, you and, and, and what your methodology is? Yeah, we're technically oriented, uh, in fact, totally technically, uh, but we have a different uh, methodology we, I developed oh, decades ago. I started in the future side of the business in 1975. I was a young guy. I was with the E.F. Hutton headquarters in New York, the commodity division there, and the chairman of the department was also the chairman of the COMEX at the time, and I studied under him for about a year and a half, and then I got into the retail side of the futures business as a broker, you know. But in 1992, um, I was invited by a major bank at the time, Wachovia, to provide research to them, and I'd never thought about that before. They'd heard about my method through some broker that they knew. And what we do is most technicians, obviously, they look at price charts. You know, that's the common thing. And they draw lines and, you know, floors and uptrend lines and so forth, and that's what they look at primarily. We study instead, we, we treat price as a secondary, and we study the momentum of price but not in the what you call wet noodle indicators that you can find on any 
quote screen like you know MACD or RSI, things like that most people have on their quote screens. Uh, we've developed our own methods of, of plotting price and its relationship to long-term or intermediate-term or short-term averages to get an assessment of the long-term trend, the intermediate trend, and the short-term trend of any given market. And But our focus is primarily on intermediate to long-term. We don't care about you know trading swings and that kind of thing. We're, we're more interested in investment-grade turning points. And usually momentum... And we'll tend to anticipate a trend change and, and sort of warn you of a trend change prior to price telling you that something's about to happen. So the price chart's likely to break down or turn up after momentum has already sort of announced it with its actions, you know, maybe a month before or two months before, whatever. Uh, but you get a warning. And um, recently, I think there's some major events underway and that are very important to especially investors who have a portfolio already uh, and let's say their retirement age and so forth, especially and want to protect it. Um, the asset categories, instead of looking just at one market, for example, uh, as a lot of people do, yeah, they may be in, you know, in the bond market, so they'll focus only on the bonds or they're in a, the foreign exchange market, only focus on a given exchange rate differential. Uh, we look at all the asset categories because often they, like icebergs, they bump into each other, okay? And they, they have wave effects that affect another market. Um, and for example, right now, we I think we're in a historic time in markets. We're about to see events that few have anticipated. Um, and I, I don't say this as, you know, to be sensational whatsoever. I mean, I've seen big events come and go over the last uh, 50 years of uh, being in the financial side, the market side. But I've never seen such a confluence of uh, asset categories banging into each other, causing wave effects in the opposite direction. And let me give you an example. Stock market uh, right now is my main focal point in that, not that I want to be in it one way or the other, but it is going to cause a lot of events, political, social, and other market events. For 12 years, we've gone vertical. Get an S&P 500 chart, for example, a monthly bar chart. Just go back to 2009 low and put it up on your screen, look at it, and you'll see that there's a nice sharp uptrend, but very old. Historically, in the U.S. stock market, that is an exceptionally old bull trend, over 12 years. And in the last several years of that advance, it went vertical. The upward curvature started to launch, you know, what we call a blow-off phase. That's where, you know, everybody joins in and it's more or less a buying orgy, okay? But you want to look for the causative factor of that, and I suggest what you put up on your screen is go to the website of the Federal Reserve St. Louis, and get a chart of, you can access it, of M2 money supply. Go back 50 years or so. Get a chart of Fed funds rate. It's another good chart to get. But on M2, you can go back to the 1960 to the present. And every decade, the money supply is measured by M2 basically doubled. Okay, It didn't matter what decade it was, recessionary, inflation, you know, all these market things didn't matter. It basically doubled money supply every decade. But since February of 2020, money supply has gone up well over 40% in two years. Now, that's a massive acceleration in the rate of increase. 
so M2 has gone off the page, but if you look at M2, you'll, that sort of explains why, you know, why a loaf of bread might have been 15 cents when I was a kid, and now suddenly, you know, what is it? Okay, well, it's not because we have a shortage of wheat, it's because we have an excess of money units. Okay, well, the same is true with other asset categories. They reflect that rising tide, that rising water level of the number of money units chasing assets. Then you look at the Fed funds rate chart, and this is Fed policy, so it's the interest rate that they, you know, that they determine. And if you look at it, go back 40, 50 years, you'll see this massive declining staircase pattern, especially over the last 20, 30 years, where rates will drop and then uh, they'll go up a bit and then they'll go down. And, but we've gone down to effectively zero and been there for 12 years plus. But the Fed funds rate has been effectively at zero. We had one blip up to 2.5% a couple of years ago, and then it flopped back down near zero. Now they're going to start to raise it again, uh, maybe. Uh, I doubt <laughs> maybe is the key word, yeah. Yeah. No, they'll do it tomorrow. I don't doubt that. But the, uh, the policy change that they're talking about, we're going to see if that continues. And I have my, I'm skeptical about it for various reasons. Uh, Anyway, the Fed funds rate chart, you look at it and you can say, oh, I can understand why, you know, money's free. It's been free for 12 years. You know, so why shouldn't I throw it at the stock market? You know, so it's those two charts sort of help explain why the S&P has had the biggest bull market bubble in the history of the U.S. stock market. So, Michael, now, can I interrupt there just a yeah, second? Sure. Because mm -hmm. cause you, cause you made a uh, you made a statement that. The stock market is going to lead to uh, massive change. You mentioned political, economic. Mm -hmm. can, can we go down that tangent sure. just for a second? Well, we know how bad it was in 2008 and 9. Remember, everybody hurt in the real world. I mean, you had businesses collapse, Lehman Brothers, and so forth. But it wasn't just the stock market break. Uh, but it, there's no comparison of the stock market then versus now. The bull market that occurred prior to that was trivial in time and in percentage gain from the 2003 low to the 2007 high, which is when it actually peaked in October 2007 prior to that next bear market, uh, the percent gain and the time it spent going up was trivial compared to what we've just seen. So we have definitely something we've never seen before percent-wise and time-wise. Um, so that decline, we know it affected the real world, so to speak, not just the stock market. People were hurt. Unemployment was terrible, all kinds of uh, sense of unease, okay? This is going to be far worse because the bubble is more massive. And when it comes unwound, it's going to affect other markets. Uh, already, if you'll flip up a chart, for example, of a thing called MUB, it's an ETF of muni bonds, it's in collapse mode. It started down months before the S&P peaked. It had been in sync with the S&P upside. But then it peaked well before the S&P did, and, it, and it's, just, it's just collapsing almost day by day. Now, we know the Fed is very concerned about you know, states and localities being able to fund themselves. Okay? So that's a factor okay, that, that the Fed is looking at. They don't talk about much. The other one is high-yield corporate debt. There's an ETF called JNK or HYG. They're also in collapse mode meaning rates are going up for high-yield corporate debt. That's another area the Fed is very concerned about. We know that because between May of 2020 and the summer of 21, they were heavy buyers of those ETFs. So all this talk about the Fed saying, well, we're going to fight inflation by raising rates. Okay, And there's a big chorus of economists on all sides of the spectrum saying, yeah, do that, do that. Okay, Fine. 
We define the S&P now as broken by our metrics, annual momentum trend of the S&P, the NASDAQ 100, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, we study them separately, uh, European markets, and now Chinese market as well. So all these markets are peaking and breaking structure that argues to us we're entering a bear market. Now, no, not a crash, but the bear markets rarely ever crash. Uh, only in 29 did you begin with the crash. All the other bear markets since then were arm wrestling matches. You know, you go down 10, 15%, rally eight, and waste two months, and then, you know, but ultimately you had a major demise in the market. We think we're entering a bear market. The problem is this is the biggest bubble in U.S. history. Therefore, its wave effects as it goes down should be quite impressive quite negative. The Fed is probably aware of this. They don't want to talk about that much because if they're going to fight inflation by raising rates, thinking they're going to stop the commodity upturn, first off, they're wrong, but they will imperil their asset categories they don't want to see go down, and that would be the stock market, muni bonds, and high-yield corporate debt. So, in effect, I defy them to continue that policy. First off, it's not going to stop commodities. Uh, our assessment of commodities is there a fresh annual momentum upturn occurred in October 2020, was where our signal was issued on the Bloomberg Commodity Index. <clears throat> Most commodities at the same moment in time turned up simultaneously. Copper, sugar, markets had nothing to do with one another. So it was a monetary effect. The commodities have been depressed off the page in terms of price for from 2016 through 2020, they were so depressed for so long, it was like a submerged beach ball. So when that asset category finally woke up and said, okay, we're out of here. And also stocks that are related to those commodities, energy stocks, fertilizer companies, which we particularly emphasized at the time, uh, have exploded because asset managers, large fund managers, I can mention one named Ray Dalio, he's talked about this much, uh, have shifted due to their doubt about the stock market for the various factors they look at, the metrics that they use. Uh, and they've shifted into commodity-related assets, and they've done quite well. I mean, fertilizer stocks, since we put out our buy recommendation, have more than tripled. Energy stocks have more than doubled, almost tripled, uh, and so forth. Uh, so they beat the market, but it's fresh. This upturn and annual momentum of the Bloomberg only began a year and four months ago. So in terms of a long-term annual momentum trend, they usually last several years. So we're fresh on the upside. And yes, some of these markets are going to get whacked from time to time because they, you know, they gain too much ground too quick. Oil is an example. You know, oil prices, uh, WTI crude hit 130 the other day and then dropped back under 100. But remember, it was down at like 10 bucks a couple years ago. So we got bullish at 40. Uh, so you're going to get sell-offs in some of these markets, but they're not going back down in a sustained way. They're merely going to have sell-offs that interrupt the advance. You know, so Michael, I want to I want to pick yeah. it up. I'm, I'm I'm coming up on a break here, but I would love to pick up the commodity uh, discussion on the other side, because that's certainly mm -hmm. something everybody's concerned about. So we'll do that with Mr. Michael Oliver. The website is OliverMSA.com when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You're listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with the founder of Momentum Structural Analysis, or MSA, Mr. Michael Oliver. Uh, Michael's a returning guest. He was on the program about six months ago. I would encourage you to check out his work at OliverMSA.com. 
very uh, very accurate guy. I get a lot of his uh, work delivered to me in my email, and I'm uh, always impressed with what he does. So, Michael, uh, thanks again for joining us today. And Good to be let, back. Let, let me just uh, have you jump in where you left off uh, last segment. You were talking about commodities and you know, a lot of our listeners that are going to the grocery store and buying products with wheat and corn, I mean, I mean, they're seeing what's going on with commodities. And you're saying this is just getting started. I'm saying it's just getting started because our our technical met- metrics argue that. But, uh, you know, if, just take the grains, for example. Uh, fertilizer is essential to yield, okay? You know, if you have less fertilizer because it's so expensive off the page that farmers can hardly make money when they can buy the fertilizer, you know, it offsets their profits. Uh, you're going to have a you have a fertilizer crisis. We know that uh, Russia is a major exporter of fertilizer, for example. It's also a major exporter of wheat, as is Ukraine. Uh, so we've got these surge, not just in crude oil, which a lot of people are looking at, but take it, uh, go to your computer screen and get a wheat chart and see what's happened there. It'll shock you, or a corn chart, or a soybean chart, or soybean meal, which they feed to animals, therefore affects meat prices. These things are off the page, but it's only freshly off the page, meaning the the explosion is very recent, and they've come from extremely depressed price levels that were basically unsustainable that were so low. And sure enough, they've now, it's like the beach ball uh, underwater and you let go of it and it submerges, you know, it surfaces. That's what's going on, but it only just began. Our work says, yes, you're going to get sharp sell-offs in various commodities from here, you know, here and there. But they're sharp sell-offs within the context of a fresh uptrend. And likely, the issue really isn't whether commodities even go higher. Frankly, some of them are off the page. It's it's if they hold their ground. Uh, Global recessionary potentials are very high right now. We're seeing the breakdown in the stock markets. I think it's reflecting anticipation of that. And the commodity prices, by just merely hanging around here, and they're probably going higher anyway, but just hanging around the current levels is chokes off too many things. The Fed is not going to be able to turn it down. And uh, therefore, the, the issue then is what do you get into at this point in time that might be good for the next couple of years without being involved in certain volatile commodities like futures or uh, even some of the stocks related to some commodities are pretty volatile right now. Uh, we suggest gold and silver. And the reason for that is this. One, they've not been that volatile in terms of percentage upside. Now, gold has doubled since 2015 from 1,050 level to 2078 the other day. Um, but most, in fact, it hit 2070 in the summer of 2020. So in that five-year span, it doubled. It didn't have, if you'll notice, it didn't have any particular external factor that you can explain the, the the upturn in gold. The For example, the commodity upturn did not even begin until after gold had already hit its high at 2070 in August of 2020. Commodities didn't even upturn until October 2020. So it wasn't commodity inflation. It certainly wasn't the dollar. In fact, the dollar index, if you go look at a chart, go back to the close of December 2015, when gold made its low monthly close in its last bear market, it was at 1060 on gold then. The Bloomberg, uh, the, the dollar index was at 98.6. Well, right now it's at 99. 
Okay, has no change in six years in the dollar index. It's been up and down either side of that number, and yet gold doubled. Why is gold so smart? I think gold is, first off, it's a monetary metal, not a precious metal, and it's looking at money. It's looking at central banks, what central banks do over the long term to the value of money. They degrade it, and gold knows that. Gold bull markets over the last 50 years, there have been three prior ones that if you measure from the low of the bear market that preceded the bull market, were seven to eight-fold multiple moves. Our last low was 1,060 area. You multiply that times seven or eight, you're talking 8,000 bucks or so. That would merely replicate three, the three prior major bull markets in gold over the last 45 years. So it's not outlandish to say, well, we'll just have another normal gold bull market. This time I think it's going to be different because I think the implosion or the bear market in those asset categories that are bubbles, primarily the U.S. stock market, will cause the central bank to have to change subtly probably with some dance steps what they're threatening to do now. Because if they continue on their policy of raising rates, their bubble is going to keep going down. Well, if they don't and they go back to save their asset categories they deem important, muni bonds, high-yield corporate debt, the stock market, that means they have to go on the easy monetary route once again. Gold knows that. So, Michael, Therefore, what do you see What do you see for silver, just, just if I can continue on that a, line? Silver over the last 45 years or so, relative to gold, has four different times reached up to 3% of the value of gold. In fact, two of the times, one was 6.5%, the other was about 4.5%, but there have been four times it at least reached 3% of the price of gold. Right now, silver is at 1.3% of the price of gold. Our measurement of the spread relation between silver and gold indicates that that spread relationship is now favoring silver once again, and therefore, if we even just go up to the 3% level, which is done, again, four times in the last 45 years, if we go up to 3%, even of the current price of gold, let's say around 2000 silver would be $60. If gold goes to 8000 merely replicates the three prior bull moves that it had over the last 45 years in terms of multiple gain, silver would be $240. Silver right now is trading in the mid-20s. Okay, you do the math. We think silver is the better place to be of the two monetary metals on, on a percentage gain basis, and we think it's de definitely better to, to be there than in gold. Uh, also, we like the gold and silver miners. We think they will outperform gold itself. Now, gold is the mama. You know, it's, it's the one holding the leash, so to speak. And silver and the, the miners are like little yippy dogs on a leash. <laughs> they tend to run forward and run back and so forth. But net on balance, we think they're the better place to be. And we don't think, we think right now that you're, you're not chasing a market. Those markets have been stuck in a trading range, a corrective process, since summer of 2020. So you're effectively buying where they were a couple years ago or actually lower than some of the peaks where they were a couple years ago. So you're not chasing something like crude oil at $100, for example. So we think that's a, the best place to be right now, given the context of these other major asset categories and what it means to central bank policy. And not just talking the Fed, but the ECB and the BOJ. Um, 
easy money is is here to stay. It's not they're not going to go the other way because if they do, their bubbles will collapse and they'll be blamed for the implosion. Um, so, so, so Michael, you're, 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 what you're saying here, and I'm, I'm just going to try to put two and two together here. Um, you're saying we, we, we could see a, a significant decline in the price of assets like, like stocks, bonds. We haven't talked about real estate, but let's just keep it as stocks and bonds. And yet, at the same time, we're going to see commodities continue to go. So does that mean that take the average person out there with an IRA or a 401k and they're investing traditionally, they could actually lose money in their portfolio while they're paying more for the items they need to use every day. Is that your forecast? That's right. That's that's correct. If you want to own stocks, uh, own commodity-related stocks. We particularly like the gold and silver miners here. We think they've been reborn over the last four or five weeks, meaning the corrective process since summer of 2020, we think, is over, and there's a re-engaging now to resume the uptrend that began back then. Um, so that would be a preferred area, commodity-related stocks. A lot of investors have gotten into energy stocks. They're probably a bit overheated at this point. Oil is probably going to enter a trading range type, volatile-type trading range, and those stocks might reflect that. Fertilizer stocks also have really been vastly priced, uh, like more than triple in the last year or so. Um, but the gold miners and silver miners look to, look to us to be the best place. If you want to own stocks, own them. Um, in fact, one thing I noticed uh, recently in the last several weeks as the miners woke up again is that uh, the large asset managers, the Ray Dalios of the world and so forth, who, you know, if they're going to get into a sector, they're not going to buy the penny stocks. It's just not what they do. They're going to buy the blue chips in that sector. Well, Newmont Corporation is the largest gold miner. Um, it exploded to new highs in the last four or five weeks, which indicates to us, and far stronger than the sector itself, indicates to us that large asset managers are, in fact, making that asset class shift, You know, taking something out of the stock market and putting it elsewhere. And that's one of the places they're putting it. And I think it's it's a, a good time to sort of replicate what they're doing because I think they're correct. So in the time we have left, uh, Michael, um, you, you mentioned uh, you know mining shares are a good place to be. Uh, owning some gold and silver is probably a good idea. Any other advice to someone who's thinking about, hey, I, I just want to retire comfortably? Well, that's that's it. Just don't you, if you want to be comfortable, don't use leverage, uh, and you know just buy them outright. Uh, and again, I don't think it's late to be buying them. They had a huge upturn percent-wise from 2019 through early uh, summer of 2020, yes. But they've since corrected for that, got into a, a wide trading range with some downside action. And I think they're reborn now. So it's not like you're chasing something. So I think it's, don't, one, don't use leverage if you, if you don't want to, if you're not comfortable with it. And uh and, and and probably best to go with the ETF type thing. Don't try to pick the stock, um, but uh, go with a, a broad ETF that covers gold and silver miners. Um, but as far as other commodity categories, I would hesitate to say right now because some of them have had such big moves over the last year and a quarter that I hesitate to say, even though we, we liked them a year and a quarter ago, it's a little late to be getting into some of these things because of volatility factors. Um, so that that's I, I know it sounds narrow uh, to say gold and silver miners, but frankly, you, the only other alternative that used to be functional for people who wanted to move assets out of stocks into something else, the alternative, aside from gold, was T bonds. 
And T-bonds, in fact, T-bond futures moved with gold over the last couple of years. In fact, the T-bond rally, the best, highest weekly close in price, lowest in yield, was one week before the August peak weekly close in gold of 2020. So they were coincident in peaking. Both of them dropped into a low in March of 2021, meaning yields rose, prices dropped for T-bonds, gold dropped back a couple hundred dollars. They both bottomed at the same time. But since then, the other alternative of T-bonds has not worked as an alternative against the stock market. It is going down. Yields are rising. So it's not replicating gold, meaning if you were an asset manager wanting to go with one of the two alternatives, you're left with only one now. That's well, gold and related. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Michael Oliver. He's the founder of MSA, Momentum Structural Analysis. The website is olivermsa.com. Uh, Michael, always fascinating to catch up with you. I really do appreciate and enjoy your work. Uh, keep it up, and I know our listeners enjoyed it as well. Love to have you back down the road someday. Thanks, Dennis. Look forward to it. We will return after these words. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Michael Oliver for joining me on today's program. If you're just joining me in the first segment of today's program, I gave some background as to how the petrodollar came to be. The petrodollar really came to be uh, back in 1974 when the United States, after eliminating the link between the U.S. dollar and gold, meaning that the dollar was no longer exchangeable for gold, they put together a deal with Saudi Arabia that simply said that Saudi Arabia would agree to price all their oil in U.S. dollars, and in exchange, the United States would provide them weapons and military protection. Now, I gave that background in light of the fact that the Wall Street Journal published an article this past week that talked about the fact that now China and Saudi Arabia are considering very seriously transacting the oil that Saudi Arabia actually sells to China, making those transactions now take place in Chinese yuan rather than U.S. dollars. So the world is moving away from the U.S. dollar. Why? Simply because the dollar is being devalued. And meanwhile, in Washington, they're really not taking any action, any proactive action to try to get inflation under control. In fact, they're really doing just the opposite. There was a big $1.5 trillion spending package that was signed into law this past week. Now, without debating or getting into uh, the merits of some of the things in the bill, I would label this as the return of the earmark, the return of pork barrel spending. On my website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can go to the Headline Roundup webinar um, that actually aired on the 14th of March, and there's a link to this article, so you can go read all the details for yourself. But just briefly, buried in this $1.5 trillion in spending was $569,000 for the removal of derelict lobster pots. $1.6 million for the development of equitable growth of shellfish aquaculture in Rhode Island. Almost a million dollars for a kelp survey in Oregon. $2 million for reducing inequality to access in solar power. I'd like to take some time to research that to find out 
the beneficiary of that $2 million. $2.5 million for biking trails in Vermont. $3 million for a fishing co-op in Guam. $10 million for sugarcane research in Louisiana. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Now, pork barrel spending, in my view, never makes sense, but certainly in light of record deficits, it makes no sense at all, especially when you consider how this deficit is going to be funded. It's going to be funded indirectly through new currency creation, which will further devalue the dollar, which will further exacerbate the move around the world away from the U.S. dollar. So we are in a cycle here that, in my view, will have to lead to more inflation. And the inflation narrative is certainly changing. Initially, when inflation became noticeable, the officials referred to inflation as transitory, blaming COVID for supply chain interruptions, saying that once the supply chain gets fully connected again, inflation will subside. Well, when that didn't happen, the, the narrative changed to now inflation is going to be persistent. Well, now this past week in a CNBC article, Treasury, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says Americans now will likely see another year of, quote, very uncomfortably high inflation. Well, inflation occurs simply because currency is created. And when too much currency is created, you get massive inflation. Now, Ms. Yellen said this, I I think there's a lot of uncertainty that's related to what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Well, I guess if you're going to blame COVID, you can blame Russia and Ukraine. And certainly that is affecting some areas of the supply chain, like fertilizer and, uh, and other items. However, When you look at inflation, it's directly related to how much currency has been created. Egon von Greyerts talked about this in a piece that he put together this past week, and he took a look at what the M2 money supply has been and then takes a look at inflation. So he points out that since 1971, the M2 money supply has grown by about 7% per year. And I talked about this today with my guest, Michael Oliver. He said that means prices double about every 10 years. It's the law of 72. 72 divided by 7% gets you about 10 years it takes prices to double. But beginning in March of 2020, M2 grew by about 19% annually. In fact, with Michael Oliver, he pointed out more than 40% since then. Well, using the law of 72, that means prices are going to double about every three and a half years, and we're seeing evidence of that. So as the inflation narrative changes from transitory to persistent to uncomfortably high and deficit spending continues to grow, we cannot expect a different outcome. It was Albert Einstein who said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and somehow expecting to get a different result. I would encourage you to get our special report for the month of March just to get another opinion on this, to give you some ideas as to how you may protect yourself. My special report is titled The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how for precious metals. All you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. 
and I'll be glad to send you the report as long as well as some bonus information. So again, the special report for the month of March, The Case for Precious Metals, a 2022 guide to who, what, when, and how. And to get the report, just visit the website, requestyourreport.com. Next week on the program, my guest will be Dr. Gary Schilling. You want to tune in again then. Have a great week.